I just mm -hmm. want to say having it's an honor to have, you know, the winningest coach in, in college sports on the Mega Method podcast. I really want to hear about how you started, coach, and let's just get into it. Yeah. Right? Here, please. Well, you know, it's funny to be to be are we recording? Are we are we rolling? Recording, yeah. Okay, good. So you can take out whatever you need. Yeah, of course, um, of course. It's interesting. I'm the winning I'm winning I'm the winningest coach in NCAA history. And I coach a sport that nobody's ever heard of. <laughs> so how's that for some irony? It's uh, you know, I it's hysterical. But really, um, you know, I was born in the Bronx. Um I was a super tiny guy. I was small all through. Um I couldn't find a sport that I could actually play because of my size. Um, and so I, you know, I tried football. That was a disaster. I tried track and field. And so anyway, I stumbled into gymnastics because that was a good activity for small people. And, you know, and just, I wasn't very talented, but I always had this imposter syndrome hanging over my head in the sense that I never really felt like I belonged, but I wanted to prove that I did belong. And which set me up for some, and my family up for some very difficult times, but at any rate, it's what motivated me. And mm -hmm. so I was training, I went to the, you know, one of the best colleges in America for gymnastics. I didn't really belong there. I was a walk-on, you know, the coach cut me three times. I wasn't a very good listener. Um, he made me the manager, you know, eventually just because I was such a pain in the neck, I got pretty good at it. And then in 1972, the Olympic team trained at West Point and that was close to where I grew up. So I went to West Point to train and they said, well, in two years time, you can, um, come, come back and be an assistant coach. I thought that's great. Uh, what a great way to start my life. I could train for the Pan American team. And so I graduated from college and went to West Point. And West Point is a very interesting place. I, I, you know, my neighbor was Mike Shizewski. On the other side of me was, um, was uh, you know, Jack Riley, who won the 1960 Olympic hockey gold medal. And then uh, there was my other, my best friend up there is a name you might know, Dan Riley. So Dan left West Point to become the strength training coach at Penn State. And wow. then he became the strength training coach for the Redskins. Wow. wow. And so he was at, with the Redskins for like 20 years. Wow. And so early in my time at West Point, I got injured and I thought I need to take up another activity. So I picked up a tennis racket for the first time. And I got pretty good at tennis pretty quickly because tennis is a lot easier than gymnastics. <laughs> So anyway, the tennis coach at the time was a world-class tennis player. Had beaten Rod Laver at uh, Wimbledon. He was really good. He quit, and so I thought, well, I'm going to apply for this job again. No right having that job. They offered it to every other candidate. Everybody turned it down because they didn't want to run with cadets at six in the morning. I was happy to do that, and they said, oh well, we'll hire you in the interim. And they took me down on the second floor of the building and they said, this is a squash court and now you're the head squash coach. You talk about not belonging. So I watched the first practice 
And I said to the guys, I have no idea what you're doing. I have no idea what the markings mean, nothing. But it looks like a game based on fitness. So I'm going to make you a deal. I'll make you the most fit team in the country. And you teach me this game. And I ended up having a 49-year-long career with tennis and squash. That's unbelievable. It's really unbelievable. You get hired for a sport that you know nothing. This is like Ted Lasso, and I know you've seen it. You have to. Yeah, <laughs> isn't it nutty? Yeah, and right? you know, and, it, and honestly, Mark, you know, if if tomorrow the athletic director said we need you to coach volleyball, I would go and watch some, you know, YouTube videos on volleyball, and I would be able to coach volleyball because business, sport, it's all the same. And it's just a matter of motivating people, figuring out what the skill set is, figuring out what they need to do, but really just motivating people to be the best version of themselves that they can be every day. And in terms of the sport piece, when I was coaching at West Point, there was a plaque on the wall and it was a MacArthur quote. And it changed my life. And I, I may not get it totally right, but it's along the lines that on the friendly fields of strife are sown the seeds that on later fields will bear the fruits of victory. That was an aha moment for me because it made me realize, you know what, if I can through sport help people become more successful later in life. And to me, that's what that quote meant. Right. That that's an interesting theme because 49 years later, we parents are missing the boat on that because part of a large part, you look, you were a professional athlete. You learn much more from losing than you did from winning, but we won't let these kids lose. Yeah. So where do they learn how to be resilient? So that's really how I got to where I am today. That's so interesting. I mean, I have a ton of questions, obviously, but you know what you just said hit me like a bolt sure. of lightning. Youth football, youth sports in general, middle school, even high school, we really didn't win a lot. Mm -hmm. We lost most of the time. And when I got to college, yeah. I was on a team that was two and nine, the worst team in one double A sports. And I was like, I can't believe I'm here. This is the losingest program ever. In my, but what you just <laughs> said is so powerful because you, the pain of losing, you realize like this doesn't work, this doesn't work, this works. We need to do this and we need to do this mm -hmm. well. And learning those lessons, you know, self plug, but four years later, we're nine and two playing one day schools and we're the number one team in the country. And it took getting your head beat in and not liking it and keep coming back and back and back to get us there. Really, we we had to earn every single- And that's single the life step. lesson, isn't it? Yeah, that yeah. is the life lesson. Getting off, you know, knock down nine times, get up 10 times. We we won 17 national championships in 22 years. 13 years in a row, we didn't lose a single match. Now, we I had the fastest horses in the stable. So, you know, that that I'm not taking any credit for that. But this year was my favorite season of all. And we didn't win. We had match points in the finals against Harvard, but we lost. 
But along the way, we lost five matches. That's more matches than I've ever lost as a coach at Trinity. And yet every single one of them was this phenomenal learning moment for the guys. And they embraced the idea that I'm going to get better from this. I'm going to get better from this. We lost five matches on the road and then we hosted the nationals. In the quarterfinals, we beat Princeton, a team that beat us 7-2 in the season. In the semifinals, we beat Penn, a team that beat us 8-1 during the season. And then we had match points, six match points against Harvard, a team that had crushed us during the season because mm. we celebrated the idea of learning in defeat. Right. Right. And I mean, my God, that's that's what it's about. We the guys were devastated and all of that. Coach, we're not, you know, you're telling us this was wonderful, but we're not getting new rings this year. But right, right. down the road, you're going to learn from this moment. And it was so wonderful to have that experience and to share that and and now motivate the boys even more for next year. Because, you know, I put up a sign as soon as we lost and I said, you know, to be number one, you have to train like you're number two. And um, and and that's okay. what you are now. So let's okay. get to work. Okay. And um, and they're really that's the beauty of it. And um, I'll tell you another story. I was working. I was a consultant for a hedge fund, and which is hysterical because I don't know the difference between short and long, and but it didn't matter. I didn't need to. Okay. So the the head of the hedge fund invited me in to meet with the company. Um, and I went up, he had bought copies of my book to give to everybody. And I spoke to the company. And at the end of the day, he said to me, um, I want you to come on as a consultant. I said, okay, we'll do it for one day at a time. You can fire me at any point in time. And as I was walking out, one of his young superstars came up to me and he said, I just want you to know that I probably will never talk to you. I said, fine. He said, you have no idea what I'm doing and I'm not interested in what you're doing. So why would we waste our time? I said, fair enough. So a couple of weeks go by and I get a phone call from the head of the firm and he says, we're having a problem. Can you come up tonight? And so I, I went up and all of these people are sitting at this huge table. And at the end of the table is this fellow who was never going to talk to me again. And he cool. is just getting peppered. 30, 30 Got years it. old. And he's he's just getting pounded by the partners. Mm -hmm. And he had lost, he had made an investment and lost a lot of money. So I I watched this for a while and I raised my hand and I said, Can I ask a question? And they said, Yeah. And I said, in this investment, didn't all of you participate in the decision? They all said, yeah. I said, then why are you crushing this guy? Why aren't you all figuring out a way to do this better the next time around? So as I was leaving, that young guy came up to me and he was literally in tears. And he said to me, you stood up for me tonight. And I said, actually, I didn't. I questioned the process. So months go by and I get a late night phone call and I pick up the phone and it's this kid. Okay. And he says, I want you to know that I made an investment today and made an unbelievable amount of money for the company. And I said, that's great, but why are you sharing this with me? And he said, if I'm going to cry on your shoulder, 
I'm going to also share the success. That's a character large guy. But it all came around failure. Losing is the playground of success. And we won't allow that to happen. And you played football at the highest level. You were a professional athlete. And you know if you missed the play and the coach came right up to you afterwards and tried to start coaching you, you wouldn't hear a word he was saying because you were too wrapped up in the moment. If he came up to you later and said, this is what happened, Mark, you learned something. So the timing of the teaching moment is critically important. And this comes back to parenting. If your child, a good example, my my little one was had a little bit of biting in school. She was doing biting. I heard and if, if when I, if I heard that, and I immediately said, Emma, this, you, you can't be doing, it was too much. It was too much emotion. Right. So what we did was during the course of the day, when nothing was happening, we'd say, hey, Emma, biting is not cool. Emma, biting is not okay. She stopped biting almost immediately because the message was getting in without any emotion. And I, I think, you know, you just had a road rage experience. We, we cannot, we cannot make those teachable moments count in the heat of emotion. Right. Just to clarify, that was an amazing lesson. I didn't have a road rage moment. Two people that I was with had a road rage moment. I was the mediator. You were but a You experienced their moment. Thank you. I did. I did. I did. So thank you. No, Ooh, that's thank you. Powerful. Emotion is, I always say, like, do you know, one of my key, like, things that keeps me on course is, and by the way, I failed at it many times, do not be mindful and do your best to make sure that your emotions do not override your good judgment. Right. And it's super hard to do, as you yeah. said, coach, in the moment. It's almost impossible to do. That's why we shouldn't approach it in the moment, as you said. Yeah. So yeah. super powerful. So I just think there's so many things wrapped up. Like you said, you know, we don't allow people or young kids to lose because that's one of the most valuable lessons. You know, Colin Coward, Colin Coward, the radio analyst. Yeah. Yeah. Us. Yeah, Fox. he lived across the street here in West Hartford before he moved out west. Oh, wow, that's awesome. I'm a big fan. Yeah. And he said something one time. He said, uh, you know, it's the irony is that we grow up either with very little or challenging circumstances. And when we get to be parents, what we do is we completely remove those challenging circumstances from their lives, which is almost mm -hmm. guaranteeing them minimal growth or uh, they're better. Yeah. He said, it's odd because yeah. we love them so much and we want to try so hard to make sure that yeah. they don't go through these things, but they absolutely should. How do you do that as a parent? Yeah. It must be so hard. And I have an eight month old and I know you're, you have a father. How do you do that? It's super hard. You just have to keep telling yourself that I'm doing the right thing for this child by allowing them to negotiate their world. And, you know, number one, as a parent, and, and listen, I wrote a book as an apology to my three children. I wasn't there for them when they were growing up. And I was trying to be the greatest, whatever I was trying to be. 
and and now it appears that that book is being made into a movie and and the what i learned in that failure of fatherhood was you need to be consistent you need to be present and they always need to know that they love that you love them other than that let them fail let them skin their knees let them fall let them fail tell them what just happened explain to them why that just happened i had the privilege of being on a panel with dr jim lair who is one of the eminent sports psychologists in the world and he, he's on the staff of johnson and johnson he's amazing so we're down at a school in philadelphia a private school and there's about 150 parents all of whom had children coming upon college application time frame. And he got up with a whiteboard and he said, all right, when your child was born, give me the big three. Well, I want my child to be healthy. I want my child to be happy. So he, came, he writes these three things on the board. He said, okay, now your child becomes old enough to learn an, an extracurricular activity, football, oboe, whatever it is. Now give me the big three. Learn confidence through an extracurricular activity. Learn how to play nice in the sandbox. So he writes down the big three. And then he turns to the crowd and he says, now I have a question. Between then and then, where did you collectively all lose your minds? Because, and he could get away with saying that, because it's right. all about getting Johnny into the best school possible and treating this experience like an investment expecting an ROI on the other end. This is not, this is not the best thing for your child. And, and that's really where I'm focused these days is on trying to help the future, this sounds too lofty and I'm not, but no, you know, okay. how are we gonna protect, the, how are we gonna protect these people in the future? You become able to make tough decisions as a result of resilience. And if you never fail, you never get to be resilient. As I tell my little ones, you know, if you're not afraid, you can't show courage. <laughs> so you have to go through that process. But man, we're just, I work at a, at a college. When kids come in today, they look more put together than they've ever looked in the past. And the first, and they present beautifully because they, they're so polished. And right. as soon as they face adversity, they fall into a million pieces. You know, over 47% of the student body is counseling for mental health. We cannot deal with day-to-day -day life because we haven't allowed them to understand it. Failure is a beautiful thing if you can learn from it. I see a few things. I see old school or, or you know, people in their 40s or 50s and 60s. They have a challenging time understanding. And I do as well how to communicate with Gen Z with a with a younger demographic, a, a younger age group. So but at what point what I do also see is that younger age group I think part and parcel to that is that I think it's very rare. I'm a big, big uh, proponent of if I do something wrong, you're going to hear it from me first. I'm going to say that's my responsibility. I did not do this right. And I take full responsibility. And I've heard that 
you take sometimes mark you take a little bit too much responsibility i don't know but i just know that i'm not going to be the one that's not going to that's going to lack awareness or have a lack of eq and say mm-hmm. look that's everyone else's fault it's my fault what i always look at me first i remember a coach said one time right. he said hey mark ownership yeah, ownership, like Jocko, extreme ownership. And I think that's really important. I, I, I believe that. Yeah. And that's what Coach Belichick would always yeah. say. He'd say, how could you have made this play better? How could you have made this play better? Yeah. So yeah. two things, Coach. Number one, I don't see a lot of younger kids taking responsibility for their stuff, but I think they don't take responsibility because they're just not aware that, hey, this this is on you as a human being. I say adulting mm-hmm. is like an extreme sport. You need to take responsibility for this, learn how to be better, become a practitioner, and then put it into motion. What are your thoughts on that? No question. Yeah, no, it's everything. I mean, you have to be able to own things, but we as a society really are, are not very comfortable with that. And you know, to me, that's character. The willingness to stand up and say, yeah, I, I, I screwed up on this. Um, and this is what, how I think I can go forward doing better or help me or, you know, that sort of the thing. I think we have to teach kids to own things. And I think that's tied to failure. If you're not ever going to fail, or you're, we're not, we're going to make, you know, when I was a young boy, if, if I, if the teacher called my father or my mother and I came home, the reaction was, what'd you do wrong, Paul? Now, if a teacher calls a young person or a progress report goes home, the first thought is, what's the problem with the teacher? You know, I mean, why why is this teacher not meeting your needs? I probably will be remembered as a player's coach. Um, There are different ways of getting there. Um, But I really believe, so I was asked recently, what's the single most important quality in a leader? And in my opinion, it's empathy. You have to be able to put yourself on the other side of the desk and understand where that person is coming from. And when you do that and you read their body language and you understand where they're coming and you can tell from their eyes right away they're hurting, then you can ask them what's going on and what's the worst that can happen. When you ask that rhetorical question, if they trust you, and trust is a meal served with a teaspoon, it takes time. But if they trust you, they'll begin to share what they're wrestling with. And then they will become more comfortable with admitting that I screwed up here or I failed or, you know, I, I whenever a student gets in trouble with, with the deans, I tell them, you're going to march up to the dean's office. You're going to put out your hands and say, put the handcuffs on. Whatever it is that is the punishment for my action, I want, and I will learn from it. If you go up there and and try to compare stories with your friends and try to weasel your way out, the punishment's going to be 10 times worse. And it's all about ownership, being being bigger than that. You know, going back to what you said, uh, point well taken, Coach. Going back to what you said about the winning teams and teams that suffered more lo- more losses, it almost sounds like you're going to end up developing better human beings from the teams that lose. Does that make sense? I mean, it's and it, mm-hmm. and it's sad because you want totally. to win. At the end of the day, 
getting yep. more out of losing, which is kind of crazy, but it's true. It is true. You need both because um, you get confidence from winning. Uh, otherwise, if all the learning leads to nothing, then or in terms of the scoreboard, uh, then then there becomes frustration. And in the old days, <laughs> you know, if if there was enough losses or a couple of losses, that person would put the finger at themselves. Now, as a coach or as a leader, after a couple of losses, the finger gets pointed at you. Oh yeah, and that's oh, yeah. that's you know. But I, I, I think it's like, you need the balance of both. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's, uh, you know, uh, I remember Belichick said, there are no bad teams, only bad leaders. When the team wins, it's because of the team. Mm -hmm. When the team loses, it's because of the coach. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, yeah, that's, that's crazy. It's just that I feel that Sometimes, like you said, empathy is a great quality. I also, I agree 100%. I've heard that many times and I firmly believe that in my heart. But I also believe that awareness is a huge quality. How do you teach awareness? No or how do you teach EQ? How is it even possible to teach those things? Yeah. Um, I think, yes. And I think the biggest enemy, so that's learning. And I think the biggest enemy of learning is emotion. I, emotion is the enemy. And, and so, especially when there's a scoreboard and there's competition or there's an earning report or whatever, you need to be able to be cognizant of what's going on. And then that allows you to be able to make in-game adjustments. And this is also true in day-to-day -day life. This is happening, I need to make an adjustment. If you are emotionally in, overwrought or even just too emotionally involved, and that includes too high and too low, if you allow that to happen, you become unable to recognize what's happening and then incapable of, of making the adjustments. Because all of this is problem solving. Every day, every moment is problem solving. One of the uh, things that I'm I'm speaking in a couple of weeks to a company, an insurance company, and I asked the guy, uh, how many people will be in the room? Because what I need to do is I need to buy two Oreo cookies for every person that's in the room. And the, the lesson, the theme is life lessons through Oreo cookies. And what I tell people to do, and this is all tied to emotion, Take one of those Oreo cookies and turn it on its edge. This wafer represents thought. You have thousands of thoughts in a day. Most of them are not good. This wafer is action. So you have thought and you have action. The cream in between the wafers is time. If you can create more time between thought and action, you're going to let make less mistakes. Now, Take off both ends of the cookies, and now I want you to make a quadruple dip Oreo cookie. You've just created more space, more time between thought and action. And by doing that, we, make, we actually make bad decisions. We make less bad decisions. So what I tell people is if you saw the Academy Award when Will Smith 
went up and smacked Chris Rock in the face. That yeah. dude had no cream in his Oreo cookie. It's true. And so it, this is my whole thing about how to manage the day-to-day -day without making the mistakes that are a function of, of emotion. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, training that, training that specific moment of like brain function is probably the most important thing. We always teach in sports, like, um, look, you got to just go react. That's sports. But off the stripes, off the field, off the court, you don't want to react. You want to give it a beat. As you said, give it time, wait, process, process again, and then respond. Mm. And Lord knows. I've, yeah, I've, no, I've, there's no question. I, I used to like say like, hey, being good at sports makes you better at the other. And I don't believe that at all. I believe there are lessons that help me be a better person, but or a better version of myself, as you said, but I, I, I believe that it's a very different mindset. And I have to almost, I've told people before, like a lot of those things I took with me and learned, but a lot of those things I needed to deprogram because that's not gonna suit me in yeah. the outside world. That's not real. Like I'm not here right. to run through some guy's face, right? I'm here to right. try to be a better human try to be better in my mm -hmm. life, but also try to be better for the people that I'm in front of every day and the people I love. And that that's a very different right. practice from sports. It really is. Yeah. And, 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 and it depends on the sport. You know, you were in a sport of big, bigger, biggest, you know, hitting, 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 you know, move, reaction, quick reaction time. But there are other sports that are, you know, Good, 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 good. You know, tennis, squash, running, where it's a repetition over and over again. It's interesting as as a coach, um, I believe in the Japanese philosophy, which is that you cry in practice and laugh in competition. And what I learned is when there's a scoreboard, you can pretend all you want that you can get to a place where you're playing in the zone completely free of concern for outcome. Once you throw that scoreboard up there, you're concerned with outcome. There's no question about it. So too many people, in my view, try to learn to compete the way they practice, which is, is with a clearer mind. I don't think that's possible. I think the key is to make practice more like competition. You know, a sword is made strong by being put in fire. If I've had any success in life, it's because every day in practice, I demand engagement and I demand a higher level of commitment. And I want the team and the players on the team to hold each other accountable. And that's hard for peers to hold each other accountable, but I, it, it has to be the case. Mm -hmm. And again, you've played at a much higher standard than 99% of the people that will ever hear this podcast. but you probably held each other accountable. If a guy was dogging it in practice, you didn't look the other way. Oh, no, no, no. Because no, that, no, that, no, person, no. that person was going to let you down on Sunday. No, I mean, you know, almost, I'd say, to the edge of fault. But, um, you know, there was no pulling punches. It was beyond direct, in your face, 
And now it's like, I can't be direct with anyone. I try. Like when I say I try, because I know if I'm too direct, this person's going to quit. Like that's, that's, that's real. I don't yeah. care what anyone says. That's the truth. So I want to be mindful of my tone, mindful of my words. I want them to understand that I want them to succeed. I'm there to support them and help them, but I need to be mindful that it's not the same. It's not the same background. It's very different. And right. I'm not in a place. I, I can't teach those lessons as I go. I can't build the parachute as I jump out of that plane. I have to be very careful. I do mindful. Yeah. Well, you know, and that, and now you're speaking of your role as a leader and, and it's different as a teammate, you know, um, where you two are on the line of scrimmage and you're, you're going at each other in a one-on-one -on -one drill, but when you're a leader and I, and I say this to the team on the very first day, and I probably repeat it multiple times through the day or through the year as a leader, I have only one obligation to you really only one. And that is you deserve to know what goes into every decision. You may not like it. You may not agree with it. But as a future leader, you need to know that's the thought process that went in. And this is how he came to that decision. And, and then I say, and be better than me. <laughs> I'm human. I, the guys know all my warts and pimples. I don't try to pretend to be some a demigod, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, I think they respect that. I think being al allowing yourself to expose yourself as a human being to fellow human beings, I think is very endearing. And I think it, in it instigates a, a, a higher commitment to each other and a, and a greater willingness to work hard together. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. You, do you, do you find like, it, it's, you know, it's funny you talk about, coach, you talk about, no, I'm go, sorry? Coach, go, no, go, please. You know, you talk about Coach Belichick, and I'm, you know, he's my, he's my hero. And, you know, I've had a chance to talk to the team. I've gone to practices, and there are two people there. There's the person that the public sees, and he does not want anyone to know anything about Bill Belichick. And then there is the person, and the guy is unbelievable. People will, will climb up walls for that man. And, right. and, you know, I'll, I, one day I was up there at practice and there was a, a wide receiver circling around him the whole practice. And I said, you know, coach, if so-and-so, I think so-and-so was looking for some love. And he said, if so-and-so could run a pattern, he'd find some love right here. <laughs> you know, the guy just, it was just amazing how That's on top of stuff he is and how aware he is of everything. It's incredible. It really is. It really is. I learned that. Uh, I'll tell you a couple, two quick Belichick stories. So my, my, my second year, my final preseason game, we're playing the Carolina Panthers at home. And I always tell everyone, if you, if you love football, watch the final preseason game for the team that you follow, because you're going to see people selling out to try to make that team because they know there's about six or seven guys. This is that the last chance. No. This is it. So in that game, I had one of my best performances in one of the plays. I had a, I came off the edge unblocked, but I closed the distance, sacked the quarterback. The stadium went crazy, ended the drive, was on ESPN, the highest, the whole deal. Now I came free 
hit the quarterback, Damian Craig, and it took him like five minutes to get up. I ran over to the sidelines. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Right. I, not really. I was so excited to end the drive. I went over to the sidelines. I know I'm going to get a good that a boy from Coach Belichick. I didn't get a that a boy. As I walked by him, he covered up his microphone and he said, "Come on, Mark, you got to get the effing ball out." Meaning, I could have took the ball right from the quarterback's hands. He yeah. didn't even see me coming. My ego told me yeah. kill him, right? So Coach Belichick, yeah. in two and a half years. He told me he never said good job. He said, that's not bad one time. One time. Wow. But I think that that, that helped me tremendously because I wanted it so very badly, you know? Mm-hmm. Amazing. Amazing. Really? We can all learn a lot from that guy. He's the smartest oh, guy in he- the room. Oh man, and everyone knows it. I mean, he's just a—he's uh, just a human dynamo. Uh, I wanted to. How do you deal with what you referenced earlier in the show when you talked about imposter syndrome? Because I think we're we're very similar. I feel like I still have that. I still question myself. Like, do I yeah. deserve this? And, I, and and at what point? I'm in my late forties. When do I appreciate that? Hey, Mark, you've earned it. And, and you know what? You're not perfect. There's no right and wrong way. There are only better ways, right? So yeah. do you, how do you deal with that? We are all motivated by different things. Fear. Um, the title of my book is Run to the Roar. Um, and I Love can it. explain how that matters into fear. Thank you so much. And so your motivator... Uh, all along the way, something that drove you to incredible success might have been fear of uh, failure or might have been the imposter syndrome. So it's hard to put down the thing that got us to where we are, whereas we need to also come to an understanding that I'm not going to get to where I want to be as an evolved human being, having that be my motivator. Um, So it requires a very deep inner look. Um, It's funny. I, I, when I first started coaching, and I would say for most of the time of my career, and I didn't realize this until later in life, but I was very ego attached. This was a lot about what I was doing. And, and it was, now I understand that it has nothing to do with me. And, you know, the coach is in the back of the room and nobody should even know that he's in there or she's in there on game day. But it was about me a lot. And so now I've come, I'm more evolved and I understand that um, it's gotta be about other people. So that was one of those big shifts, just like my big shift of the imposter syndrome going away. But it's only through hard work and only the and only the belief that that's in fact not helping me as a human being. Um, but it's hard because that's what's made you successful. The uh, it's funny, I joke about how as you get older, life begins to make more sense. And I think at some point in time, I will have figured it all out, but I will have run out of time. <laughs> and so, you know, it's one of those sort of funny things. But 
it took a long time. I, I had a phone call recently from a guy who said, you know, my neighbor is your former assistant coach at West Point. And my stomach went into a knot. And I said to him, sheesh, please tell him hello for me and tell him I apologize and that he would like me better now than then. Now, there was no incident that precipitated that thought. It's just that I don't really like to look back at that person because that's nothing about the person I am today. Well, I mean, I I share that with you. I mean, thank you very much for that. That's super powerful and helpful. But I mean, there are people that I want to call, like seek out and call and say, I just need to tell you I'm sorry. Like, I don't know what else to say. I mean, ego, like, and by the way, I know it's a spectrum and it never really goes away. I understand that. Um, Right. But more than ever, it's like, I try hard to look at myself. I think the most important thing, coach, is you don't know what you don't know, and you're always going to be smarter in 15 minutes. And it's like, you know, just do your best. Like, you know, take responsibility, be accountable. And I try to let other people talk first and then learn from them. And it's, I know it's not Mm. all about me. I used to kind of believe that because that's what I came from. You have to get out there. And if you're not your biggest fan, like, no one's going to like, you know, push you. And then I yeah. realized like I get the most fulfillment and I feel better from helping other people, you know, a hundred percent that, that, that's what I know. Um, you mentioned earlier, yeah, coach, that, that's beautiful. you mentioned, I'm sorry, coach, you mentioned earlier that you, you, you were a roommate, you had across the hall with Mike Krzyzewski and Pat O'Reilly. What did you learn from them? Because those are like iconic people. What did you learn from them? Yeah. So, so yeah, Dan Riley was the hockey coach and had won the 1960 gold medal. And, um, and what I, what I learned from him was just how it it was every day. The, The interesting thing about being a coach at West Point at that time, there were no bonuses for national championships. There was no, there was no, Hey, well done. It was, that's what your job is. You get up every day and you go to work and you do your job. And that's what's expected of you. And and that's a beautiful thing. And that was what I learned there. Shizevsky was an interesting guy and he contributed to my book, which I feel very thankful for. But one day I would, I would see him at night and we'd have a Diet Coke every so often. And one day it was Army Navy week. And I said, Hey, coach, can I come down and watch practice today? Because I'm giving my team the day off. He said, sure. So I go down to the field house and he comes in. And within five minutes, he's a screaming, raving lunatic, yelling, F-bombs flying around the building. And he throws everybody out. And I go over to him that night and I said, I got to ask you a question. What set you off today? Because I didn't see anything. And he said, oh, no, no, no. I had scheduled this a couple of weeks ago. I knew I needed to get their attention. A good leader knows how to motivate. Now, I am am not a screamer. Um, I was raised on good old-fashioned guilt. So my sledgehammer is guilt. Oh, man, I can't believe you care so little about the history of this place and, you know, whatever. But, But you can only use the sledgehammer once. Because, you know, like they say, the louder you talk, the less that gets heard. But Mm -hmm. it is a fun way to figure out how 
to motivate people every day. And, you know, when people see me on game day, parents will come up to me and they say, wow, what a, what a nice guy. I'd love to play for you. No, you wouldn't. You know, game day, my job is to take the pressure off. My arm is around the guy on game day. You come to practice. It doesn't look like that. Right. And it's because, you know, Mark didn't need anyone to motivate you to play the Jets. But on Wednesday, when nobody was watching, what was your motivation? And it is what ultimately determines how well you can perform against the Jets. But in this day and age, people, kids especially, don't understand the importance of preparation. Same thing in business. How are you preparing for that board meeting? You don't just walk in and wing it. So it's practice, practice, practice. Sometimes right. I talk in Philadelphia, and uh, I, you know, that's when Allen Iverson had that famous quote. We're talking about practice, man. There's nothing more important. You know, when I was coaching right. World Team Tennis, and we had James Blake and Monica Sellis and these players on the team. And we'd have a match at night. And then they would do autograph signing, which was free time for me because nobody wanted my autograph. And then we'd have a team meeting and we'd say, okay, tomorrow we have this, this, and this. What do you want to do tomorrow? And you know what they did always? The first thing they put on the calendar was practice. And they built the day out from practice. Okay, we're going to practice at this time. That means we're going to eat at this time. That means physio is here. And it's all about practice. And when people ask me what I'll miss the most, I'm not going to miss the games. I'm going to miss practice. Yeah. Yeah. That's super powerful. I think I have, uh, you know, you ever seen the movie? I have one more question, basically. You have, uh, you ever seen the movie Whiplash? No. Ooh. Well, firstly, you got to watch that. You watch that first, and then I'll have you on again because you need to watch that. You, coach, you're gonna. It's basically about a music teacher, who's ex the top music. Oh, I've heard school. about this. Oh man. Yeah. It's, a, it's like a, a story about how the teacher is so hard on the kids that they just either quit or they push through it. And one kid. Right. Basically, they have this trauma bond, and one kid says, you know, you push people so hard, do you ever think about you may be forcing the next great musician to quit, and he'll never become the next great uh, musician? And the teacher says, no, I'm not worried about that because the next great one would never quit. Now, I think about that all the time. Oh, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, I yeah. don't know. I don't know if that's true. I, I think about that often because maybe personality's personality. Maybe they, you know, maybe they quit. I don't know. I don't. Sometimes I don't know the line. So my question to you is, how do you get young people yeah. to to care more or take more pride in their work? Like, can you teach that? You got to create an environment that's safe for them where you can challenge them without breaking them or scaring them away, but you have to challenge them. You know, we, I work in an environment now where mental health is the deal. My wife is a professor at Trinity. She told me a story about a young woman who emailed her <clears throat> late 
uh, or there was an assignment due and she was late for it. And she said, you know, dear, dear Professor Julia, um, can I get an extension on this? Because a week ago I saw a spider in my room and I have arachnophobia. What? That is, is that where we are? And of course, Julia had to say, of course, I'll give you extended time. We need to be able to attend to where this generation is, is, but we have to also find a way to challenge them or else we failed them. And that balance is much tougher. Whiplash wouldn't work today. No. This, they, and, you know, I'm not a fan of the phrase, you have to meet them where they are, but you have to meet them where they are. And you, that doesn't work anymore. You would be fired in a second for that. You'd have a case, law cases set against you. How sad is that? But, but you, need, you need to challenge people, but you, you, but you can't break them. I, I think that's, I think that's, I understand that and, it, and it's very fairy tale-esque. I mean, look at the, look at the Miracle on Ice movie. I mean, Brooks Love pushed it. those men to unbelievable extremes. Doesn't work anymore. No, it doesn't no, work it doesn't. anymore. And so, how do we find that balance? And I think too many people are giving into it and saying, "Well, then I'm just not going to challenge them at all," or we become afraid. And and I and I. I think we need to keep pushing. We need to keep pushing. We need to keep asking questions. I think the questions you're asking are amazing. And you have an opportunity with a child to really make the ultimate influence on this person's life. And yet, in the end of the day, you're going to find out there's a lot of luck and chance involved. Yeah. And and there's it just you never know. You never know yeah. how it's going to go. Coach, you've been amazing. Like this has been so special. Um, I just, I, I honestly, I could talk to you for like five hours. So um, thank you. No, I love it. Doing. Yeah. Really, you're, you're, oh, you're yeah. awesome. I know no. you're, you're a legend. And uh, we got to thank Casey no. Hart for connecting us. Oh, Casey's I love Casey. Man. What a special human being. Please awesome. send him my best awesome. today. I will. I will. I will. He, he's got the greatest old soul. Um, no. I'm kind of hoping that it didn't come out well so that we have to do it again. And then please let me know how I can help. Sure. I'm sure it came out great, but we will do it again. And uh, I'll stay connected, Coach. Have an amazing fourth and uh, wishing you all the best. Okay. Thank you.